Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. We have a very special and unusual conversation today. And as a way of introducing it, a brief story. I have a friend in Southern California whom I've known for probably 30 years, happens to be a very successful attorney. We'll call him Brian perhaps because that's actually his name. Uh, and Brian wrote me a couple months ago, and he said that he is a member of an organization in the United States called American Inns of Court, American Inns of Court Foundation, and that he had just heard a lecture by Judge Barbara M.G. Lynn, who, in addition to being formerly the chief judge of the, norm, of the Northern District of Texas, the first female chief in Texas, I should point out, also serves as the president of the American Inns of Court Foundation. Now, if you're not a lawyer, uh, like I'm not, and you don't know anything about the American Inns of Court Foundation, as I did not, it's a fascinating uh, organization dedicated to civility, professionalism, and excellence in the legal profession. And it's something that I dare say I said to Judge Lynn before, if she gets some time on her hands and wants to come create the same thing in Israel here, I will personally meet her at the airport. But in, uh, in any event, uh, my friend Brian told me that in the course of a lecture to the Southern Californian particular area where he lives, uh, American Inns of Court, Judge Lynn from Texas gave a lecture in which she said, that what's going to happen with Israeli democracy as a part of the whole issue of Israeli judicial reform could have an impact on democracy around the world. Uh, and Brian and I were just simply having a purely social conversation, and he mentioned this lecture, and it stopped me in my tracks. I mean, what is a chief judge of the Northern District of Texas speaking to a bunch of American lawyers in Southern California saying, wow, what happens in Israel could have an impact on democracy far beyond the borders of Israel. It struck me as such a fascinating proposition uh, that I asked Brian to put us in touch. Uh, Judge Lynn could not have been more gracious and forthcoming in, willingness, in her willingness to speak with us. So Judge Lynn, first of all, thank you very, very much for taking the time. I will just say quickly, uh, you are a summa cum laude graduate of the University of Virginia. Uh, you graduated first in your class at SMU's Dedham School of Law in 1976. Uh, you were in a Dallas law firm of Carrington, Coleman, Sloan, Blumenthal, and remained there until you took the bench in the year 2000. So it's an extraordinary career, very impressive, with a very long biography, which we will include parts of in our written introduction. Thank you for your time. And I'm all ears. Explain to us the comment about Israeli democracy and its outsized uh, impact on world democracy. 
Well, I should begin by saying uh, I'm speaking to you and your audience just as a private person, uh, a bit of a news junkie, uh, not wearing my official hat as a federal district judge. But as I am a news junkie, I follow the news uh, freely and am very interested in things relating to Israel. I have uh, several relatives in Israel, and Israel holds a special spot in my heart. So I have followed with great interest uh, the subject of uh, judicial reform and particularly the reaction of much of the Israeli public to the efforts in this regard and their expressed concern about what these reforms mean to democracy in Israel. So if you will indulge me, let me begin with a very abbreviated discussion of the contrast between Israel and issues of judicial independence and the situation in the United States with respect to judicial independence. The critical difference, of course, is that we here in the United States have a written constitution. Uh, you in Israel do not have a written constitution, and there have been uh, substitutes for it, essentially the basic laws. So because we do not have a constitution in Israel, uh, the Supreme Court in particular has evolved to a point where it has, sees itself as protecting the Israeli public from excesses of the executive and legislative branches. Now, in the United States, that concept, judicial review, was foreshadowed by Alexander Hamilton in one of the documents essential to the creation of the Constitution, the Federalist Papers. Uh, for those among your audience who might want to look at it in particular, it's Federalist Paper number 78, again authored by Alexander Hamilton, that talks about the judiciary being able to review actions of the executive and the legislative branch as part of a fairly elaborate system in the American system of checks and balances. Now, in Israel, in contrast, that had to evolve. Now, when I talk about the impact on democracy of these judicial reforms, were they implemented, I think I need to be a little bit more specific about what I mean by democracy. I think all of us would agree that in a democratic system, the majority selects its leaders. Uh, in most systems, uh, at least in the federal system here in Texas, not so in the state system, but that's a discussion for another day, uh, the people do not select their judges. Uh, they are selected through a fairly elaborate uh, system of nomination by the president and confirmation by the United States Senate, uh, but the people do not directly uh, elect their judges, nor do they do so in Israel. So the process of selecting judges is not part of democracy in that very narrow sense of the people selecting their leaders. But they do select others who are involved in the process of selecting judges, as they do here in the United States. But I go to step two in what I mean by a democracy. And by a democracy, I mean a political body that protects the rights of the minority, not just the majority. Uh, 
So here in the United States, I think uh, those politicians who adhered to good principles of good government would see themselves once elected as representing all of their constituents, not just the constituents who elected them. So in most democracies or entities that call themselves democracies in the world, this issue of protection of the minority is critically important. Now, I do not pretend to be an expert on the details of judicial reform, and I will say that the reporting about the details of judicial reform is quite uneven, at least the publications that I read. But as I understand it, coincidentally, this very week that we are having this conversation, the judicial reforms are back on the table. And the concern that many have about the judicial reforms is that they adhere to one aspect of democracy, but not the other. So, for example, it is my understanding that if the judicial reforms that are contemplated go through, the Knesset, 61, a one-vote majority out of the 120 members of the Knesset, could overrule a decision of the Supreme Court of Israel. So that reinstates this principle of majority rule, but is very risky in terms of protecting the minority. So uh, it is that concern that I think is very important in terms of talking about what this potential means for other democracies. The really quite extraordinary number of people who have shown up to protest against these reforms is really quite astonishing. As you were saying before we started this morning, you have a country of 9 million people and several hundred thousand people have been showing up regularly to protest these reforms. Now, I'm not naive, so I don't think that every one of those 200,000 people knows the details of the judicial reforms that are being contemplated. But what I do know is that they are concerned about a system that allows uh, the other branches of government to act with impunity and potentially thereby injure the rights of the minority. That is critically important to people throughout the world because in a democracy, the essential basic human rights, which again in Israel are protected by the basic laws and in, in the United States are protected by the Constitution, are in fact protected in large part by the judiciary. If the prerogative of the judiciary to continue to do that is taken away, I think other countries will be very nervous that their nations too might move to autocratic government as opposed to a democracy that protects the minority. So that's a, a short version of the concern that I have. I think that what is happening in Israel is being watched very closely across the world. As you well know, uh, diplomats uh, in Israeli posts around the world uh, joined in the strike, and that got uh, attention throughout the world. So it's very different. I, I will uh, close my introductory comments by saying, in my view, it is very different to make a judgment at the front end of creating a political system 
not to have certain aspects of judicial review. I'll give an example, the United Kingdom, which is certainly uh, a successful uh, means of government. And they don't have judicial review. So you don't have a body that can declare unconstitutional. Again, they don't have a constitution either, but they do not have a system like we do or like Israel has evolved to have of judicial review. But it's quite one thing to create a system that doesn't have those features than it is to take it away because people feel a vested right in a system that protects all of them, the majority and the minority, from excesses of government. And that risk is even further enhanced in a parliamentary system where the executive branch and the legislative branch, uh, the divisions between them are blurry, if not non-existent. In the United States, we really do have a robust three-party kind of governmental system, three branches of government, that they're not wholly independent of each other, and they are interdependent upon each other. But there is an elaborate system that creates uh, a system, as I said, of checks and balances, uh, thereby discouraging, and if it occurs, eliminating excesses of one over the other. That's fascinating. It's a very, very helpful introduction. Uh, you were you were kind to Israel by saying that the boundaries between the executive and the legislative are are blurry. Not only do they not basically exist at all, we have here a unicameral parliament as opposed to a bicameral parliament. So even in England, for example, which you mentioned, there is at least the House of Lords, which can slow down some legislation, even if at the end of the day, it can't put an absolute stop to it. So our system might be even more vulnerable in that regard. Now, over the course of the many months that this has been going on, that I was at the protest uh, last night, and they, they proclaimed this was week 25. I thought it was 27, but I guess we've lost count uh, in all these protests. But in the course of the really more than about a half a year that this has been going on, we have had on this podcast a number of people come to speak about it. We've had authors of the actual proposed judicial reform come and explain why it's perfectly in keeping with liberal democracy. We've had uh, deans of law schools come and explain why it would be the end of liberal democracy. We've had people in the middle. Um, so we have heard from very, very bright and thoughtful people on all different sides. And just for the sake of being fair to our listeners, uh, point out that I happen to uh, lean very, very strongly in in the set, in the direction that you articulated, which is that these reforms um, would be very problematic for Israel's liberal democracy and the protection of minorities in particular. And one of the examples that we've given in the past, and I'll just review it, re- reiterate it once again, is that by a simple majority Uh, The uh, Israeli Knesset, for example, could decide to close tomorrow all the mosques or all the non-Orthodox synagogues in Israel. Just pass a law. Now, the defenders of the proposed reform say, yeah, but it's not that simple because the next Knesset would actually have to uh, give another stamp of approval to that law or the law would, would fall. But that, of course, to me at least, is is very slim, is very thin consolation because we don't know when our next elections are, but assuming that they're on schedule three and a half, four years from now, you don't want to live in a country in which a whole series of houses of worship have been closed because of the predilections of one particular government. So it's very complicated. What would the different proposals of the judicial reform actually allow in terms of judicial review and all of that? But I want to talk about America, other liberal democracies, and Israel's 
implicate the implication of what happens in Israel for that, because that's what struck me as being really fascinating about what you are saying. Because we know that the world is watching. We know that diplomats all over the world are watching. We know that Moody's is watching and that Bloomberg is watching and that S&P is watching. And there are even rumors here in Israel that S&P was about to downgrade Israel's rating when they were given assurances, whatever that even means, I don't know, that this is not going to go through. So don't downgrade us because you're going to see this is going to work out okay. That's what I've been told by somebody in the know, but I can't vouch for its veracity. I can only say that it's a widely held view on the inside here. So we know that we're being watched closely by other by other countries for a whole array of reasons, because of technological reasons, economic reasons, diplomatic reasons. But why would why would countries around the world be more worried about what happens in Israel, for example, than what happened in Poland or in Hungary? Or why would countries that have stable liberal democracies say, oh my God, what happens in that little country tucked away between Syria and Egypt, a country with a population more or less the size of New York, uh, why, why would that have any implication beyond Israel's borders? Why would it not just be seen as steps taken by a peculiar democracy in a complicated part of the world that have no bearing on anybody else? Well, I think uh, Israel is held up uh, in many ways as a model in terms of its political system. And when uh, the political system does not satisfy those high expectations which have been set for it, uh, people are watching. But more particularly, I think, as I indicated in my opening remarks, it's a quite significant thing when there is a change in a setup for a government. And uh, Israel evolved to the system that it has now. Um, if you're on the losing end of uh, decisions, you want to see things change fundamentally. And I'm going to come back to this because it certainly does have repercussions in the United States. Uh, but I think that people around the world are concerned about a democracy that is evolving to a point that it creates more and more power in the executive and or the legislative branch. And in the case of Israel, that's the same thing as you uh, rightly pointed out. Because there, and I, uh, this comment is not intended to be a political comment. I'm not going to say anything about the prime minister and my personal views of him at all. But there's no question that these changes would enhance dramatically the power of the prime minister in this administration and in future administrations. And that accumulation of power in the executive is at odds with the aspects of the democracy that I have mentioned. And essentially, uh, this is particularly problematic when, uh, like the United States, I think it's fair to say that Israel is quite divided, uh, seemingly evenly divided, um, at least in terms of uh, the election, if not how the people actually uh, feel. And so the, the, the combination of a change in a system that prevents excess by its very nature and accumulates power in the hands of the 
executive who then is in control of the legislature, I think is and should be a matter of great concern for democracies across the globe. We have seen a move toward totalitarian regimes. And again, I, this is not, I'm not making any accusations with respect to the prime minister or speaking in that context of Israel. But uh, there are uh, many heads of nations in the world or those who aspire to be that who would like to accumulate more and more power traditionally in democracies, uh, the judiciary is a thorn in the side of those who want to do so. Um, often the judiciary uh, has prevented the worst excesses from coming to fruition. And if it is very easy to swat the judiciary away and put them in their place, if you will, that has a profound risk, uh, creates a profound risk for democracies throughout the world that that can happen to them too. That the fact that a head of state is elected by the scarcest majority may mean that what they say goes for everybody and they do not see themselves as representing all of the citizens, but only those citizens who supported them. And if that's the way they approach their positions without the judiciary providing a check for that, this aspect of democracy that I mentioned at the beginning that is so vital to its success, protection of the minority, has the potential for going out the window. So I can't think of a recent example of a nation that is that adheres to democratic principles that is talking about taking away the fundamental aspects of judicial protection against excesses. That, to me, is a unique thing that has happened in my adult lifetime. And so I think it bears watching and being concerned about it for the future. Now, I'll take just a minute, if I may, to talk about uh, aspects of projected reform in the United States. So there are a lot of people in this country who do not like uh, decisions of our highest court, uh, particularly when they are interpreting the Constitution uh, in terms of, of words that are not actually in the document but might be implied. And when they are unhappy with the result, uh, there have been a number of calls for reform of the Supreme Court of the United States here, expanding the number of justices is an example of that. Uh, President Biden created a bipartisan commission to study potential reforms of the United States Supreme Court, and even they uh, could not come to a consensus. And I think a lot of people, and I will include myself in this, uh, are concerned about radical reform. Even if people are unhappy right now, that radically reforming an institution which overall has worked well for us for several hundred years, uh, it might not be the best thing for our democracy to try to throw it out and start again. But in the, in the course of the years that you've been in the, in the legal system, 
first as a practicing attorney, then as a judge, and so on and so forth. Uh, similar changes have taken place, for example, in Hungary and in Poland, in, in very similar ways, in which uh, the, the power of the court was slowly eroded, and then the chief executive used the power of the legislature unimpeded by the court to make dramatic changes. And before you know it, people in both Hungary and Poland would say they woke up and they were living in a very different kind of a country. Why do you think it is that the world has its eyes on Israel in a way that it didn't have its eyes on Poland and Hungary, Turkey to a lesser extent also, but that's different, I think. But Or, or am I wrong? Do you think were, were jurisprudential thinkers like yourself uh, watching Poland and Hungary with the same level of concern and speaking about it to the same degree that they're speaking about Israel? Or is Israel somehow playing an outsized role in all of this? And if it is, uh, why? Well, I, I think you you rightly corrected me. I overstated my position, but... Hungary and Poland uh, are, were, uh, hopefully still are, fledgling democracies. Uh, these changes uh, occurred over a much shorter period of time where the rights uh, of an independent judiciary were not as deeply enshrined as they have been in Israel. So that is the distinction uh, that I would make. They come out of the Eastern Bloc, uh, things were different uh, in the past when they were uh, communist countries, uh, and they have struggled over the creation of a workable system. Uh, but you're right. Those are examples of what can happen in an instant to change what I think enshrines freedom. And I mean by freedom, not that everybody gets to do what they want, but the minority are not prevented from doing what citizens in a free country ought to be able to do. So I think you're right in pointing out that there are shorter terms examples where a strongman government comes into effect and recognizes that the greatest threat to continuity of uh, an autocratic system is to suppress the judiciary getting in the way. And that did happen in Poland. It did happen in Hungary. And I think there are a few other examples of uh, that short-term change, which I think is also very negative. But this is a fundamental change that is being made uh, in front of the whole world with people having the opportunity to protest that. And that combination of people rising up and wanting to protect the rights that they have had through the concept of judicial review is really quite a compelling picture for people to see. Uh, so this is being played out in public, not behind closed doors as it has been in other countries. Fascinating. There were a lot of protests in Poland, by the way. One of the fascinating things that um, we've seen on Israeli social media uh, are messages to us Israelis in English most of the time sent over Twitter or whatever version of social media where people are saying, don't do, don't allow to happen to you what happened to us, which was that they wore us down. In other words, they kept us going. And at a certain point, it gets cold. People have to go back to work. People stop going to the streets. And more than one person was recorded in English speaking to Israelis saying, you got to stick it out. You got to hold out for as long as you need to, because we eventually stopped protesting. And then we found ourselves living in a very different kind of a country. And Judge Lynn, you pointed out at the beginning of our conversation that as we're having this conversation today, 
the reform is, in fact, back on the legislative table in Israel. And I suspect that part of what Bibi Netanyahu was actually trying to test is, have they gotten tired? Are they, he's going to start with one of the less objectionable elements of the reform, which is what's called the reasonability clause, uh, which in and of itself is a little bit complicated and everybody acknowledges that's the, the least dangerous change. So he figures if I can get that through, maybe I can sort of grease the wheels a bit. Um, so uh, I think there is cause for us Israelis to be concerned by looking at the Polish and Hungarian examples, I, I even agree. though you're quite right. You're I quite agree. right, of course, that they come from the they come from the Soviet bloc and right. we come from the Western Hemisphere. But now let me I, ask you a question about. Oh, go ahead, please. Well, please. I just wanted to say that that is uh, one of the profound benefits of the internet that uh, we don't have borders that cannot be pierced in terms of communication, except in those countries that uh, suppress the internet. But the support that those who are interested in blocking reforms that they regard, rightly or wrongly, as anti-democratic from others who have had similar experiences, I think is vital to motivating people. You are right. Um, Protest is tedious, uh, hot, cold, difficult, gets in the way, and a, a minor victory can make people go home and then they don't realize that they still need to be there. So I agree with everything you've said. Well, it's actually fascinating, by the way, you're saying they're hot, they're cold. Um, I was at the protest last night in Jerusalem. It was a hot hot Saturday night. And a lot of people out there in shorts and T-shirts. Uh, and I was reminded that when these protests started, we were in parkas and wool hats and gloves. And so the mere fact that the, um, the clothing has changed so much is a kind of a reminder to all of us how long this has actually uh, been going on. And the social media thing, I'll just mention since you mentioned it, I think people outside Israel may not be entirely clear about what a profound role social media is playing in organizing these protests. Uh, Many of us are on numerous WhatsApp groups where not only do they tell you the protest on Saturday night in Tel Aviv starts at 7.30 and in Jerusalem it starts at 8.30. And then after Saturday night, when the drone goes over, they tell you how many people were there. That's simple. What Israel has, what a lot of people protesting here have done, and many people find it objectionable, and I could make an argument on either side, so we're not going to go there right now, but they have been hounding all the members of the Likud party who are in favor of the reform. They haven't been harming them, but they have been making their lives fairly miserable by being outside their houses and accompanying them as they take their kids to school and shrieking whistles and this and that. How do we know where they are? Because one person spots them, and then it goes out over the uh, WhatsApp groups that we have. And so social media has become a very powerful force here. Some say highly overused and unfairly so. And some would say key to democracy. Uh, but your mention of social media, I think, is very apt. Let me ask you, by way of beginning to wrap up our conversation, um, something about the implications of what's going on in Israel as you see it as an American uh, lawyer, judge, thinker about jurisprudence and so forth. How does this play out? Um, Do you think that there is a greater chance that watching Israelis protest in the streets week after week, month after month, would inspire people, let's say, in the United States or in other Western liberal democracies to hold tight and not allow those changes to happen? Or is there a greater likelihood that legislators would say, look, even in a country like Israel, which had a fairly robust democratic foundation, they were able to push it through. So if we want to be able to make changes here, 
We watched what happened in Israel. They just wore them down and eventually they got it through. In other words, are you as now again speaking, not as a judge and not as an attorney, but just a thoughtful person looking as a news junkie at this whole issue, are you more inclined to think, wow, this is going to inspire the resistors to change? Or do you think this is going to embolden those who would like to make change? I think change uh, in our country in terms of the composition and jurisdiction of the United States Supreme Court would be exceedingly difficult to achieve. So uh, at this point, I'm not prepared to say that what is happening in Israel would have a profound impact either way. Um, At the moment, uh, the conservatives in our country are quite satisfied uh, with the direction of the Supreme Court. Uh, I think the more liberal members of our society are not but times change because uh, our justices, although they serve uh, for life if they choose to do so, uh, everybody gets old and everybody passes away at some point. So things change. You can't see the future. Uh, I think uh, despite some unhappiness, uh, particularly I'll mention uh, the applicability of canons of ethics to members of the Supreme Court, Uh, I think that is an area where there could very well be a reform. And I think there is a mood uh, among the members of the general public that that would be advisable. Uh, That could happen. I think that's a realistic thing that could happen. And I think that's slightly influenced uh, by things that are happening in Israel. But generally speaking, at this juncture, uh, I think people are watching it just to see that people can have a role in their democracy that is significant uh, with large-scale protests that do not involve violence. Uh, That is a critically important part of a successful democracy. And I think whichever side of the fence uh, a person here watching is on, uh, that is something profound to take away. I know that those who think uh, judicial reforms of the type that are being advocated are appropriate are also protesting. So there is a a large-scale attention to issues that matter to the future of democracy and how Israel implements that. And I think that is a good thing that people are engaged because apathy, in my judgment, uh, should be a cause for concern. That's when bad things happen, uh, when people are not watching what is going on with their government. That's when steps too far are often taken. As an American citizen, in addition to being an Israeli, a person who spent a lot, a lot of years living in the States before my family moved to Israel a few decades ago, I would say that not only do I uh, agree completely with what you're saying, there's two other pieces that I would love to see future protesters in America take with them from what's happening here. First, you mentioned already the lack of violence. Um, and the, you know, the, again, the proportion of numbers in a country of only 9 million people that Over the course of the cumulative number of weeks of protesting, many millions of people have come out to protest, and there's been basically been zero acts of vandalism. There was there was one case when the offices of the think tank that has been propelling these proposals forward were were ransacked, and that was totally unacceptable. It happened once and never happened again. And there was, I think, two instances of the use of too much police force. One was a stun grenade that was thrown. No one was really injured, but it was considered to be very, very 
unacceptable here. And there was one case where a policeman on a horse uh, used a bit more violence of pro- force against the woman protester. She wasn't injured, thankfully. But so the one thing that I would say is that, first of all, that there has been relative, I mean, virtually zero um, violence or use of force on either side police or protesters here, which is really an extraordinary thing. And as an American, I think back to what transpired uh, in Portland and in Seattle in the United States a few years ago, which was just devastating and just heartbreaking. Uh, No matter how legitimate the sense of frustration might have been on either side, you know, here I would hope that Israel would be a model to the world, uh, that people would say, no matter how deep my grievance is, Look over there, that crazy little country, which is not known for being underspoken or soft-spoken. Uh, look how they look how they did it. And the other point that I would perhaps make, uh, which I think has also been very inspiring to me here, is that uh, the flag has become the symbol of both sides of the protests. In other words, uh, in Portland and Seattle, the protesters uh, were not carrying around American flags. They were not doing what they were doing out of a love of country. They had a whole set of grievances, which we can discuss at some other point in time, Uh, some legit perhaps, some not, but whatever the case may be, they were not protesting as a statement of the love of their country. And I think that what you see here that's uh, very moving, quite frankly, is that even when there are opposing protests on both sides of the street often, uh, they're both holding Israeli flags. Uh, they're using megaphones and they're trying to outscream each other. And they're saying sometimes some not very nice things, to be sure. Uh, but they are nonviolent. And they're all saying we're doing this because we love our country. Uh, and if there's something that Israel could actually um, inspire the world with, I would hope that it would be that as well. Um, but again, it had never occurred to me until uh, my friend Brian heard you speak uh, at the American Inns of Court that it, that it never occurred to me at all that, that leading lawyers, judges, jurisprudential thinkers in the United States uh, would be watching Israel out of more than mere curiosity. They would be watching it with a sense that what happens here has implications for the world far beyond us. Uh, that struck me as really being very, very interesting. And uh, to hear it from the person herself who said it is a privilege for me and for all of our listeners to hear a person of uh, your stature in the legal community is a gift no matter what. So I am really very, very grateful to you for responding to my request that we talk, for teaching all of us what you've taught us. I thank you for that. And I look forward very much uh, to an opportunity to being able to thank you in person uh, when you visit Israel or I come back to Texas next time. Thank you. It's been a joy. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.